everybody, and welcome to a special edition of The Latest Shiny. Uh, this is Rob Hirschfeld solo. Every once in a while, I grab uh, Greg Althaus and Victor Lother, our uh, tech team at RackN, to talk about something deep and technical. Normally, we try for a 201 show. This is 301 level content, because uh, we're going to nerd out on net booting, also known as pixie booting. Uh, this is related to content I'm building for a talk for SRECon in June, uh, but I, I have to do the research and I thought you'd be um, welcome to, to play along and listen and learn some things about how network booting works, because even though I live that every day, I still don't know nearly as much as these two gentlemen do. So, Greg, Victor, welcome. Hi, thanks, Rob. Hey, thanks, Rob. So, you know, Pixie Boot or PXE is about network booting systems, um, but it's not one thing. Can you walk us through what what chain of things have to happen for Pixie booting to work? Where to start? Um, <laughs> right, I'll give it a shot, and Victor can make fun of me. So, usually for Pixie booting, what we're doing is we're trying to remotely boot a server into something. And I say server because it applies to other things, but let's kind of just stick to the server pattern. So the first thing that usually happens is that some piece of software on the system, either NIC firmware or I guess it could be in the BIOS, but usually it's some NIC firmware, tries to DHCP to something to get an address. And historically, you could do boopy and other crap, but let's stick to mostly modern stuff. And so you would DHCP, and part of the DHCP reply could be a host of things. And this is where Pixie gets a little strange, right? In the sense that there's a Pixie protocol, and then there's kind of what people just do and other stuff. So DHCP came from boopy, and boopy just had this, here's a file, boot from it mechanism. And so DHCP kept that going. So you could, in some cases, have a DHCP server that says boot from this file. Well, in the case of the NIC boot, right, in this case, it looks for a boot file, and if it finds it, off it goes. If you're booting a normal operating system like Windows, it's already running an OS, so it ignores the boot file and just continues going with the IP address. So that's not exactly your traditional Pixie, but it works. So then what is Pixie? Well, Pixie was a protocol kind of added on top of that to say, well, we kind of sometimes want to control that a little more than just a DHCP server passing stuff. So this is where my brain gets fuzzy because I'm so old, I just do the first pass. At this point, you would send a DHCP message and the server could say, well, don't boot from this. And then in parallel, another message could be returned by another server or the same server. And this is where it gets funny, where it could be on the same port or a different port to say, well, get your IP from the first one and get what you should boot from from the second one. And there's various other protocols that kind of go with this. There's BinL, which is a Windows protocol that lets you do some port hopping. And depending on options sent in the DACP package, you kind of choose. And I know Victor has more of that in his head than I do, so I'll let him talk a little more to that. Okay. 
So yeah, kind of like what Greg, what uh, Greg was saying, um, you can split the, the notion of a server pixie booting into two parts. Uh, the first is kind of the original uh, loosely based on boot P protocol uh, booting where the DHCP reply packet uh, gives you a, here's the TFTP server to talk to and here's the file you should run. Um, when most people talk about pixie booting, that's what they're talking about. Um, there's a second option which lets you get more control over what gets handed back and forth and adds a little bit of state management on the DHCP server side, which is when the uh, initial request packet includes option 67 with the magic string that indicates that, hey, I actually want the pixie boot. And the server then can, can then take that magic string and do a little bit of processing and figure out uh, whether or, and figure out, you know, what architecture the system is and what type of boot file to send back to uh, the system and what type of other options to send back to control uh, various boot related um, procedures that the client firmware would want to support. But mostly it boils down to uh, properly interpreting option 67 is where it turns from just straight up booting over the network to uh, pixie booting. All right, so when you say options, you're meaning something very specific about the DHCP protocol. Yes. Um, and, and that most people don't have any idea exists. They think DHCP gives them an IP address. What is this options thing? So DHCP, in addition to giving people IP addresses, um, was also designed with uh, a whole lot of extensibility in mind uh, to the point where for DHCP over IPv4, there are like about 190 defined options uh, that mean different things to uh, different subsystems and most of, which, most of them are not really used at all ever anymore because they turned out to be bad ideas. But such as a... Uh, such is the life, such is the life cycle of a thirty-year-old protocol. <laughs> well, but, and that's but the idea of options, and there are some that are commonly used, right? So the the use of an option was to basically convey additional information, either from the client to the server or from the server to the client. And the idea there was normally you would just say, "Here's the boot file, have fun, go," but they were like, clients and servers can also pass additional information. Things like the server could say, here's your default gateway. Here's and your DNS server. Here's your DNS server, mm. or time server, or all sorts of things. But the client right. could also send information to these options as well. Commonly, the clients, the DHCP clients, would issue an option that says, I want these options. <laughs> so, that, so that a server could say, oh, you're one of those kind of clients, so let me send you this specific set of things or let me not send you other things, okay? And then that morphed into a whole different set of option chains around vendor-specific options and other stuff. But the basic idea, idea there is the options go back and forth. And a lot of times when you're configuring a DHCP server, what you're really doing is saying, here's a set of IP addresses to give out based upon where you are in the network, and then here's the options that go with that. And so when we're talking about option 67, Option 67 was one that says, from the client to the server, that says, I'm this type of hardware. And then the server can interpret that. And so, like, we at RackIn use that to determine whether we should send a AMD64 legacy boot image, a AMD64 UFI boot image, or an ARM image, ARM32, ARM64, all that kind of stuff is encapsulated in 67. 
nowadays with most modern hardware, we'll put that in quotes as a friendly statement, <laughs> that option is always sent. It's just kind of part of those boot systems sending that option. But So one of the things about all this, and one of the reasons I think options is necessary is that TCP and parts of this protocol are UDP not, or sorry, DHCP is UDP not TCP. How important is that in in considering a netboot process, right? Because you're you're not in a routable multi-packet protocol. Isn't isn't all this option stuff necessary just because it's got to be in one packet, or is there something more complex? Well, partially. I mean, the the reason I mean, DHC, the, the the important thing too when you talk about you know uh, sending packets over the network, the important thing to remember about DHCP is that it relies on broadcast to work properly, which kind of by definition means that without the, like a DCP relay, which, you know, is a whole different uh, topic, um, the DCP server has to be on the same uh, layer two subnet as the machine that it's uh, servicing. And that's, that's where the UDP versus TCP choice comes in. It doesn't necessarily have to do with packet size or embedding things. Options just become data that travel between the client and server in the packet. The, the choice of UDP is because you're dealing with some the broadcast aspect, right? I don't have an IP address yet. So I need to broadcast a message to everybody to say, hey, give me something. That directly implies a certain amount of non-connection oriented communication. The UDP is in generally considered a connectionless protocol where there's not necessarily state in the communication itself. So the protocol itself isn't keeping track of what sequence the packets are in or anything like that. A packet can be processed kind of independent of the other stream of packets. Where TCP is a connection streaming based protocol so that the data flows in a, in a stream and retries and position within that stream is maintained. Right. Because of the broadcast nature, it's very hard to accurately do a streaming protocol. And so the, the broadcast is what drives that UDP decision. And so once, that's in, once you realize you're broadcasting, then you can move to, okay, well, everything's going to fit in a packet. And then from within that, you're going to have to have access to something in the layer two domain. And that's where we talk about a relay agent. So a way the, the IETF got around dealing with having to have a DHCP server in every single network is that you have to have these relay agents. And relay agents take pa broadcast packets, convert them into IP-based packets, usually from the switcher router, and send that to a configured DHCP server. When the forwarder sends that, to the DHCP server, it adds its IP address to the packet so that the DHCP server can know which layer two domain that came from. And that's the basic operation. There's other options like there's this option 82, as well as some others that allow you to extend that concept to say, well, that was issued from this switch on this VLAN at this time and this method with this security model give me an address or information based upon that additional data. There's multiple schemes for extending just that basic idea, but 
that's the basic idea. Okay. And so one of the reasons why I was asking about that is, is I was going to pivot us into this multi-stage component because right, we've been talking about DHCP and options a lot, but once you actually get the file we're it's not like it's, you know, you've got a lot of infrastructure. We're talking about really minimal bootloaders. And so we've got this TFTP, HTTP, HTTPS sort of process, which always, it, I always struggle to explain it because most people don't realize just how many different protocol shifts we go through just to do something as simple as NetBoot. Can you, can you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah, so I'll start and then Victor can talk about some of the funness that we've done. The basic protocol level requirement historically is that you do DHCP over UDP to then get to a TFTP based transfer which again is another UDP protocol that's very simple and stateless, though really old and has problems, to let you get your boot files. Now, that can be used to actually get to a very complex system deployment. So, and because it's all UDP based, it's simpler. The code stack you need to deal with it is smaller. And originally that was an issue, it's less so now. So you can boot an initial bootloader, which can then pull over a kernel, which can then pull over an initRD, which can then bootstrap and drive into installers and other kind of environments. It's just over TFTP, it'll be very, very slow because it's a UDP protocol that has no buffering and no concept of uh, minimal uh, window size kind of concept. So it turns out to be very, very slow. We have chosen to do some additional things in that path. Yeah, so like our initial, like uh, the way we generally boot systems is, uh, you know, first we start with the HCP. We figure out that a system wants net boot. Uh, we hand it back. Here's the TFTP server you're going to use, which is us. And here's the file you're going to load, which is a file that we serve. And um, that file goes out and it pulls down. It tries to pull down a default configuration file uh, when it starts executing. Uh, so, like, let's, let's take the example of a legacy system that is booting into uh, Pixie Linux. So, DHCP is going to be responsible for saying, hey, go download Pixie from here, and then Pixie Linux will go and search for a configuration file that tells us, that tells it what to do next. Um, once it gets that configuration file, Pixie Linux is then going to uh, scan through that file, figure out what kernels, what kernel it needs to load, what uh, initRDs it needs to load, and uh, what options to pass to the kernel. It'll then go down, go and uh, download the kernel over TFTP, download the uh, initRD over TFTP, and then execute the kernel, which at that point the kernel will start bootstrapping the system and it takes control of everything over there and it's kind of out of our hands at that point. Um, is, is there any way to skip that? Like um, I know UEFI, which is the new version of, of BIOS, also the, the non-legacy BIOS. Like, can we just skip right to the, the last stages of that? Or do we have to go through all those steps every time? We have to go through all of those steps every time because every system that we uh, load uh, can potentially wind up loading a different kernel and an NRD uh, set of files depending on what we want it to do. And okay. uh, 
the DHCP, the handshake that you go through whenever you, you are pixie booting a server at the DHCP level um, is not complex enough to contain all of that information. So we have mm -hmm. to do some additional back and forth with, uh, you know, sit with staging configuration files and uh, going through that whole process. But I was under the impression, though, that legacy BIOS and UFI BIOS, like, netboot differently. Is that just a false impression because of different, you know, the way they start up differently? What's, how to, why are those different? They require different bootloaders. So the uh, bootloader oh, okay. that you load for a legacy BIOS um, is uh, basically a binary that's written to a very old specification. Um, for uh, UFI, it requires a specialized uh, UFI executable type, um, which is standardized across all operating systems. Um, that's a bonus. Okay. Now, <laughs> Yay for something. Now, one of the things that often makes it feel like they're drastically different is that once you're into the UFI bootloader, usually it's a bit more modern. So your config files can define additional protocols to use to download information. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, a lot of the times when we detect that we're using a UFI bootloader, we'll send a bootloader that has the ability to use HTTP and HTTPS to download the kernel and the initity. The reason that's important is it allows us to use TFTP for the very small bootloader fees, then pass additional information in the, that config file, which is still brought over TFTP. But once that config file is brought, it can reference additional resources through, like in this case, a lot of times we'll switch it over to HTTP, which then allows us to do TCP and streaming, which allows us to send much bigger files faster through the system. So, so how do we know which thing we're doing to what? Um, planning. Very <laughs> construction. In, in effect, that's what it becomes. The fact that we know which bootloaders we're going to hand out when allows us to then drive what type of config files we make available for those bootloaders to take advantage of the various system components. We also choose to do additional things for, um, like at RackN, we choose to do additional work on some of our commonly network booted pieces to make it faster in the cases where we can't take over as quickly as possible. So when Victor was talking about, you know, you could load a kernel in an NITRD and then that takes over and takes control. Well, for some of our network, network boot pieces, we try and make that kernel in that first initRD very, very small so that once it takes control, we can take and switch to higher speed transfer protocols like HTTP to pull the rest of the system down. So our discovery image, for example, that we use to inventory, discover, hardware configure, and all of that stuff is actually a fairly large image. It's 600 or 700, 800 meg in size. Kind of down to about 200 meg, you'd say. Well, okay, so. It used to be a lot bigger. Yeah, it used to be a lot bigger but could be, and we wouldn't mind it being as big because we split it into three pieces. It's got its kernel, it's got an initial energy, which is, those are very small. They're in the 100K kind of size. And then the bigger chunk, the 200K, 200 meg part is pulled over through HTTP. And since HTTP oftentimes can be three to 10 times faster than TFTP, that makes a huge difference in booting systems. And while for one system, that's not a big deal, when you're actually starting to try and manage hundreds and thousands of these systems, it does become a bigger 
just systemic impact on your server. Makes sense. And even even the workload to serve uh, a TFTP file, I think, was is bigger than an HTTP file from an optimization perspective, right? Yes. Yes, and that's because yeah. TFTP was uh, designed to be really easy to implement, not efficient. Right. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. One of the things that that I remember us, you know, people stumbling on is that sometimes when you go through these processes, especially if you change the BIOS, it, it changes the NIC, which NIC is booting. Like you can get systems really confused over something as simple as I patched the BIOS and now I'm booting off of a different NIC, but it's the same system. Like how do you identify machines from that perspective? Is MAC address important? Hmm. Very. Yeah. <laughs> so the default operation for, well, DHCP is this thing called a client identifier. And this sounds like a great idea because it's the quote identifier for the system and the system's supposed to come up with one. And the hope was that that would be a way to skip over this, hey, but I booted from a different NIC. It also requires that you can synchronize that execution across those NICs. And that doesn't often happen. So a lot of times what ends up happening is in the DACP server, you create entries for everything that you think that system could boot from and consistently give out the same information. We've okay. chosen to have the ability to record what we see machines boot from. And then as we inventory systems, add that to the list of things that identify that machine uniquely within the DHCP server. That way we can consistently try and return the same set of information even though it might be booting from different NICs because of sequencing or timing orders. So, the, I mean, this is one of the reasons I know we've, we've integrated DHCP into digital rebar, even though it's not required in all cases, because those integrations make a big difference about how you serve files. When, when we start talking about different architectures, I mean, how different are the interactions based on, say, an ARM system? I know, Greg, you did a lot of work with Raspberry Pi recently to make that boot Pixie boot, which is non-standard. Non how much variation is there in how these systems operate and what is that variation? Well, I mean, first off, the Raspberry <laughs> Pi doesn't actually Pixie boot. <laughs> what? What does it do? Well, it does something that is almost but not quite like Pixie booting. Yeah. <laughs> it, okay. it's the, it does the Oh, yeah. Well, it does that first case where if you pass it the right set of options, it will do the right thing. The problem is the Raspberry Pis don't actually follow any of the Pixie standards or even basic DHCP standards for things like what it is. So it's got a whole host of additional problems. Like we were talking about that option 67. Well, it actually lies and says it's option 67 is a AMD based processor. So if yeah. you just follow that, you would say, oh, well, here is this bootloader for AMD 64 and it would explode. So you have to do additional processing to figure out this is actually from a Raspberry Pi based upon looking at additional options. And then you have to send back custom options to the Raspberry Pi, otherwise it won't boot either. So there's a whole class of things that are going above and beyond just normal operation for that. But within architecture choices, um, this is why the Pi is a weird one. 
but in your normal standard arm pieces that are to have something that has more of a real pixie stack, that option 67 tells what type. And the big difference in the process turns into what images you serve. It's not necessarily the flow, but the, the images that you serve because the images are not compatible across the systems. So an ARM64 isn't going to execute AMD64 code set. That even goes all the way down to the bootloader. So the DHCP system has to be able to detect, hey, what is it? And that can either be hard-coded through reservations, right? I know this MAC address is ARM, so let's send it an ARM image. Or you have to have something that can pay attention to the options and make decisions on that. And so, yeah, like for instance, which is Go ahead. You talked about the, the, the Raspberry Pi as an ARM64 box, but if you want an example of uh, ARM64 boxes that actually adhere to the Pixie standard, pretty much any uh, ARM64 server type system um, uses a UEFI uh, firmware and it adheres to the Pixie standard and we boot it just like we would boot an AMD64 system with the sole exception being that we send ARM64 binaries instead of uh, AMD64 binaries. Because because it's not lying to us when it when it tells exactly. us where it's That's right. It's not a lying lie. <laughs> Got it. But what about what about something that's not even a server-based thing like a switch? Or it switches, or, you know, are they sending the right information? And how do you how do you send information to a switch? So switches become their own thing to some degree, in the sense that they may choose to play DHCP. Switch, switch to vin vendors chose to think of themselves better than server vendors and decided to create their own protocol, <laughs> um, which, you know, come on, dudes. But there's a protocol called Oni, which is what a lot of the switch vendors use. And it looks a lot like DHCP but it has extensions that allow them to try and do things that are outside of DHCP. But it works on the same principle of, I want an image, give me an image, let me boot this image. And it's how switches tend to image themselves. And then from there, you can send additional options to do zero touch provisioning or ZTP, which involve pulling additional config files that let you set up the switch. These are usually done as DHCP options. So like option 119, I don't know, something like that, is if you send that appropriately um, to um, a, uh, what's that? Cumulus, the cumulus, cumulus switch. switch. Thank you. Um, it will know to pull a file based upon the path you give it, and then we'll examine that file for certain tags. And once it sees those tags, we'll execute it as a startup script. Now, switch vendors don't have as common a set of tooling for that, and so it tends to be per vendor. But this, the general idea is that DHCP, some combination of DHCP options or ONI extensions allow you to actually then do the same thing for a switch. Yeah, I mean, the, my, my understanding of the switch initialization stuff is you're basically burning a, the firmware in the switch and then it starts the firmware. And, and so it's not exactly booting as much as burning. It's yeah, it depends on what you passed it as part of the ONI configuration 
and what DHCP options you sent. But yeah, okay. in effect, you're, you're, the ONI path is for flashing the, the switch to a specific level, and then the ZTP is configuring that once it's flashed. Okay. And then, but that's really different than what we normally get when we install an operating system, which is this kickstart precede stuff, which makes people's head explode. Um, right. So, so, so we, we spent, we spent about 20 minutes now, 30 yeah. minutes actually talking through this, like, how do we get the boot thing going? And then we're, we're not even, you know, 10% of the way done in a way, right? What's, what happens next? Once the, the net boot image is, is transferred at that point, you're off into what you want to do with the system. And that's why it's kind of hard to say the process. You're right. may be 10% done, but where you end up with depends on what you're trying to do. And the mm -hmm. reason I'm hemming and hauling a little bit is if I'm doing provisioning, you know, reprovisioning or setting up my system to boot a ESXi cluster, that network boot may then drive to install ESXi, which the VMware installer is kind of kickstart based. It'll do some things and reboot another couple of times. It'll eventually get to booting from the local disk, and then you might choose to drive additional configuration. And so that's one path of which the bootloader and the initial kernel image that you send then has additional config pieces that might get pulled from a provisioning server that represents that kickstart file. And depending on how you're doing it, you're doing it without a system. And so you just have a set of static files that you're passing around, or you do it like with uh, the digital rebar system where all that stuff can be dynamically generated and built on the fly so that you can get dynamic kind of information and build stuff. But it also means that you could also choose to do what some people like to do with their on-demand Kubernetes clusters where they're building and Booting a mutable network infrastructure that then builds a Kubernetes out of out of RAM systems, right? Where in that case you're not actually booting an installer, you're booting the production kernel you want to run from, and then transferring potentially through the same provisioning system a config file that turns that into a Kubernetes worker, for example. So in some regards, your choice of where you end up, right? once you get that bootloader and kernel in place is based upon what you want the machine to do. And that's, that's where awesome. additional complexity comes in, right? So one of the things I, I really like about our system is the, the ability for the system to let you dynamically choose what that's going to be so that you could from one day decide that that's going to be a locally disk booting ESXi cluster to a in-memory Kubernetes cluster within minutes just by rebooting the system. Right. That's one of the things that, that always amazed me when, when we started this journey was just how fragile these Kickstart precedes files were because like you had to know everything about like the hard drive layout and the NIC layout and then build very bespoke files per each class of system. And then like if you change to Eufy BIOS, then those files wouldn't work anymore because the drive enumerations were different. Um, how did people cope? How do we cope with that? With a lot of effort. <laughs> I, I shouldn't minimize it. You're right. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. We cope with it by being very flexible in how we set up things and uh, detecting as much stuff as we can uh, dynamically instead of hard coding everything. 
Yeah. And, and, it, and I guess part of what the other aspect of that that we try and do a lot of, which is inventory, record, and then reuse. And so that's the dynamic nature that Victor's talking about. But a lot of times we don't just say, let's go put an OS on it. We'll drive the system through a discovery process first to build up information about, okay, this system thinks drives are in these locations. Let's use those locations in the next step. So okay. we try and discover the information versus just having it hard-coded and set. Makes sense. How's, how's that different than, say, a cloud init? If somebody's only used to working in the cloud and they'll, they, they can you oh, know, retrieve yeah. a cloud init file and spin See, something up. There are days that I dream that we would only chose to do cloud infrastructure. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's the aspect that's often frustrating when people say, well, it works in the cloud. It's like, well, yeah, because the cloud you know, system boots with one disk and one NIC, and it's already on this disk, and it's right all that stuff and everything shows up it has sda and nick and eth zero and all this stuff right because you get consistent that's part of the value of the cloud is you get a consistently built thing mm. the problem with infrastructure or physical hardware is that i may choose to have a dell system that has one raid controller with all my disks on it next week it might have been cheaper for me to have bought an hp system with two raid controllers and half the, right, all sorts of things. <laughs> and all of those systems will appear different, even though in the end, I want the same CentOS 7 image with Kubernetes installed, right? Yeah. I want the same result. Part of what we try and do with our process is allow you to figure out those differences to then normalize them back so that those cloud units continue to function with certain normalization points. And so that's why it's like, well, would a cloud init work? Sure. Serving a cloud init is actually just like serving a Kickstart file or anything else from a provisioning system's perspective. Depending on what type of provisioning system you choose, that'll be static or some range of dynamic. With our digital rebar system, it's pretty much 100% dynamic and built on the fly so that you can take advantage of discovered hardware patterns that allow you to change and let you drive configuration. Like we've done cases where within the cloud init, we build a different cloud init based upon the number of NICs found. So we have a customer who says, oh, here's a NIC. It's got one, let me set up a single config interface on that NIC. But if they detect two NICs, then they go, oh, this system we want bonding on, so let's set up a bonding configuration. And the system can make a decision based upon whether or not they see the right number of NICs, whether they want to set up the right pattern of configuration for the network. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's that's tricky because it's it is. If the systems that have different configurations, you provide different information. And that's important uh, from that perspective. Uh, all right, I have two more questions just to give you a sense on um, actually three, sorry, I lied. Um, the uh, one of the, I guess the, the first one is, there's this thing called K-exec. Um, yeah. <laughs> which, which, you know, on, on very simple terms, it lets you switch kernels. But I mean, we actually like 
UK exec back into Sledgehammer, which then netboots. It's sort of netboots. What's what's what is K exec and and why is it useful here? So K exec is a uh, Linux specific thing that basically lets you uh, load a Linux kernel as if it were an executable file and then execute it. And uh, the new kernel takes control of the system from the old kernel and goes off and uh, basically starts rerunning the system from scratch, but in a new, uh, but in a new execution environment. So, um, a re so is that a reboot or is that not a reboot? It is. It looks like a reboot from the point of view of uh, anything that was running on the system. It doesn't look like a reboot from the point of view of you don't have to go through the firmware and the BIOS again. Which is which saves a lot of time. Yeah, which, um, <laughs> server systems can you know save you five minutes per uh, you know per reboot effectively. That, that's a big deal. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's for but. My understanding is kexec is really part of the normal boot process anyway. You're just jumping straight, sort of straight to the end of the story, right? Or straight to the middle of the story. Kind of. Okay. <laughs> um, kexec can fail for a lot, for uh, several different reasons. Um, one of the things that it kind of relies on is that the kernel can reinitialize all of the hardware on the box appropriately itself. And that is not always necessarily true. So you can get into situations where K exec fails and you have to reboot the box anyways. Um, the other thing is it's Linux only. So you can't uh, K exec from uh, you know, Linux into Windows or Linux into FreeBSD or Linux into anything else, really. You can only go from Linux to Linux. All right. Okay. No, but <laughs> that's, that's a is, lot of, that's good. Which is true. Though, for systems like Digital Rebar, the interesting thing that we do there is since our discovery image is Linux, it allows us to, for Linux-based systems, hop around fairly quickly between those pieces so that we can say, oh, you, were, you want to do discovery and you're sitting there in your locally installed Linux? All right, let's k-exec into Sledgehammer. So we don't have to go through a post process in the firmware. And then once the system's running, it can say, oh, you want to install CentOS or Ubuntu. Let me, instead of network booting into those installers, let me k-exec into them. And so for certain classes of operations, that's okay. That's really useful and saves yeah. quite a bit of time. Well, it's gonna get more complicated here shortly. Yeah. Uh, and so my next question was going to be about secure boot. So I, I know one of the, the things that we're working on doing is automating the secure boot process. And that could probably be an hour discussion. Can, can y'all describe it in five minutes? <laughs> um, so in normal UEFI without secure boot turned on, uh, the basic chain of events goes uh, system Pixie boots, we send it a uh, bootloader, it executes it, and the bootloader continues doing whatever it needs to do. With UAFI secure boots turned on, every binary that gets loaded via the UAFI firmware, directly or indirectly, has to be signed by a key that firmware trusts. And so with UAFI secure boot, we have to make sure that uh, any executable file we serve, which includes bootloaders, uh, Linux kernels, um, 
VMware kernels, VMware modules, and if, and if, uh, and if the RDs, they all have to be signed and trusted by the firmware in UEFI. Um, so we have to use uh, a different set of bootloaders in order to make UEFI secure boot work. Um, the other thing that gets complicated is that out of all the pieces of firmware that are uh, out of all the loaders that we load, um, with the way UEFI works, um, whenever the loader loads, it actually stacks a new set of loader functions onto the one that the UEFI firmware has, which, which is what allows it to trust things like the additional kernels and the additional bootloaders that it has to load. Um, that way, for instance, you don't have to wait 90 days to a year for your new kernels to get uh, um, signed in case you need to update them to fix a bug or whatever. Um, right. You can rely on your distro being able to sign things quickly because, and uh, with the same key that is already trusted by the earlier bootloader that gets loaded. Um, and, that, and then that lets you ensure that the operating system you're using is a trusted source operator. Like somebody hasn't slipped something into your operating system mm -hmm. um, and created a backdoor or something like that that you didn't need to have. Right. Right. But you have, but it makes sense, right? You have to have a complete chain of trust the whole way through. And then one of the things that, that you know, I realized and I was like, eh, is that really such a big deal? You can't, VMware can't tell the machines that it's running as virtual, virtual servers that they're secure booted if it's not secure booted. So it's actually a multi-layer, it's a layer cake of, of trust in that perspective. Yeah, that's the way VMware is designed to implement it. Um, things like uh, KVM, for instance, don't have that restriction. But um, hmm. you know, that also makes them somewhat less secure because they're virtual machines that claim they're secure running on an OS that hasn't been booted via secure boot. Yeah, that doesn't sound so good. Yeah, okay. Well, true. It's a trade-off. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, but from the, that, the KVM perspective, the, the machines might think they're running in a secure mode. And because you control the hosts, realistically, they are in a secure mode. So, it's... It's simpler from that perspective. How how widely deployed is the secure boot process in your experience? Um, pretty much every piece of hardware that's released with UEFI for the last ten years has secure boot uh, available in some form or another. And um, and how and and are people using it? Increasingly more and more. Okay. Um, it's cool. been defaulted on for like all Microsoft client operating systems. Um, since uh, ever since Windows 10 released, I think is when they made that mandatory for it to be enabled by default. Ah, so so it's a big deal for desktops and desktop clients. That makes a ton of sense, and yeah. not as much on servers, just because I guess servers are still legacy BIOS even more than UFI still. Uh, less and less. Okay. But yeah, a lot of the server environments have been trailing the adoption, partially because of the lack of tooling to make it easy to manage large volumes of servers, right? And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because if, if once, and is there a restriction? Once something's in secure boot mode, is it harder to manage from that perspective? Or, you know, is there there's some additional challenge from that perspective? Um, that kind of ties back into what I was, that uh, comment I tossed out about KExec. Um, in some ways, yes. When the system is in secure boot mode, um, there are some things in the firmware that you can't change from the operating system. 
and uh, hey exec from uh, a kernel from one distro to another distro is not going to work because the signatures won't match. That makes sense. So you, you could go like uh, CentOS to CentOS, but not CentOS to Ubuntu, say, or versions right. of, okay. Yeah, which makes perfect sense because you're changing the kernel. Yeah, because they have different, uh, have different uh, chains of trust and, you know, and uh, the secure boot mechanism doesn't allow those to overlap. Cool. And then another hour long conversation in a five minute question. <laughs> Is there a way to bypass net booting? Like, can I just say this sounds really crazy and horrible? I just want to, you know, uh, not not have to go through this process every time. Yes, but there's usually measures of diminishing return. So, additional ways to provision a server are go find a ISO drive, you know, a CD drive or DVD drive and plug it in that way, right? That's all. Mm, like, like embedded on a, a vendor's out-of-band management card or something. So. No, I was saying just go find oh. an ISO, burn the DVD and go, <laughs> in, right? That's <laughs> plug in the USB keys. <laughs> and you can do USB keys, right? And then if you have an appropriately powerful enough system, there's out-of-band management tools that lets you remotely mount ISOs and things like that to do a remote boot, which is effectively like a net boot just through the out-of-band processor instead. And some people- Probably a lot slower. And usually <laughs> slower because the protocols and stuff that the out-of-band management system has and the interfaces that those use are usually slower and less uh, robust than your production level system components. But that's a way people go about doing it. But it requires you to know your remote access point, right? And, and IDRAC and ILO. Right? And, and then you could, it could be very hard to change if you're like, oh, that's not what I meant to do. It's, you don't have a lot of control uh, points. It becomes much more a one-off system. One of the advantages of most of the NetBoot systems is that you can fire and forget them in the sense that you reboot them into DHCP and then because of the automation aspects, they'll just come back. For the remote stuff, you in general have to like go to each system and you don't have to physically go, but you have to touch each system through the out-of-band management system to say, okay, you need to boot this, this ISO, so let me attach this ISO as a virtual media. Let me then reboot the system into booting from that media, let me make sure it goes through the process and ejects that media, right? And then unmount that media so that I don't leave that hanging around for the, the OS to have to deal with once I'm done with it. So it becomes a more tracking process than a lot of the more zero touch ideas that you can get from network booting. Okay. Wow, I mean, this is there's there's hours more that we could spend on this. It's sort of what our bread and butter is with RackN, and we see all sorts of weird conversations. Thank you. We've got 50 minutes, so I'm ready to let people digest what they have. If they have more questions, um, can they come into the RackN Digital Rebar Community Slack and and try and figure things out? Is where's a good place to start? Well, that's where some of us hang out, so it's definitely a way for you to get questions answered in this area. We may accidentally point you at our product a lot, but that's okay. That's the that's the reference implementation that we know, so it makes a lot of sense. And then yeah, uh, 
we're always in favor about hearing about <laughs> weirdnesses because it usually means it's something we got to handle if we don't already. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, excellent. Thank you. I, I appreciate this. I, I, as always, I learn something every time I talk about this subject with y'all and you would think that I'm st so steeped in it that I should know it uh, back and forth, but there's always new details for me. So thank you. Appreciate the time, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks.